When Sir Roger Tichborne was shipwrecked and lost at sea in 1854, his mother fell into a deep state of mourning, both devastated by the loss of her son and insistent that he was still alive. As much as the rest of her family tried their best to convince her that Roger was not ever coming back, she just refused to stop searching. It was a stance that paid off handsomely then, when her long-lost son made his triumphant return to England 12 years later with the plan to reclaim the family estate. It would be a claim that would make it to court and eventually be the longest-running trial in English legal history, holding the title for over a 100 years and would light up the Victorian press with scandal, humour and class warfare that would last decades. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories, Season 6, Episode 12. I'm Ben, as always. Just before we get started this week, I've got a couple of little things I want to say. Um, firstly, I just want to say thank you. Uh, I got a few emails concerning the last episode um, from people in Ireland, and they they uh, just sort of um, sort of thanking me for doing the episode. And 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 a few people sort of said like, you know, um, thanks for um, sort of doing it with nuance and things like that. And and I was. Like in regards to the bit, like the context at the start, where I talk about the history, um, and and I was just, uh, yeah, thank, thanks very much for getting in touch and letting me know that because it is, it is nice to know, and um, it was really satisfying to read those emails. So thank you for that. Anyway, enough blowing my own trumpet. I also want to thank Anne who uh, gave a donation uh, this week, and uh, she said she was trying to buy some books from my um, Amazon wish list i've got a, a if you're not sure what i'm talking about i've got a book list on amazon wish list for dark histories um for things that i'm thinking about like sort of researching in the future and things like that and um she said basically she couldn't figure it out and she thinks it's possibly because she's from the us which it might be the case i'm not really sure but anyway so she sent a donation instead and said please spend it on books so um just to let you know i did uh i bought a folio which uh is going to be really handy for an episode in about two or three episodes to tell me well <laughs> maybe one episode maybe two maybe three maybe five i might i'm a bit chaotic when it comes to planning but in a future episode i bought a, a folio that i've been after for a little while so um yeah that that that, that Brilliant. Thank you very much for that. It's very generous. And um, I'd also like to just, uh, oh, yeah, quick reminder that um, the season five book is out. If anyone wishes to purchase that, it's all the scripts from season five. Um, a little introduction from me about my experiences making the episode um, or making that series rather. Um, but yeah, series five book is out uh, now. So you can buy that in Amazon and I, I think other places as well, but but mainly on Amazon. So, yeah, uh, if you want to um, go for it, thanks very much. Anyway, let's crack on with the episode because um, it's going to be a long one. This is called The Tichborne Claimant, A Tale of Two Butchers. To the east of Winchester, just outside the small village of Alsford in the south of England, the large 19th century manor house of Tichborne Park stands in the middle of a sprawling green lawn its clunky, square, two-storey façade, plugging the gap in the trees and meadow flowers filling the surrounding gardens that make up a significant portion of its 116-acre footprint. The house was built in 1803, complete with attached Catholic chapel, to replace a far older manor that dated back to the 13th century. The estate had belonged to the Tichworn family since the 12th century, who, until the late 19th century, 
were mostly famous for one of the strangest legacies the country's ever seen. The Tichborne Dole, or the Tichborne Curse as it's also known, came about in the 12th century, when the Lady Mabella de Tichborne requested a dying wish from her husband that he donate food to the poor. He agreed to her request, with a somewhat twisted execution, when he suggested that he would hand out the equal amount of grain as she could crawl around before a flaming torch would extinguish. The lady put up a good fight and made it round 23 acres of fields which, owing to the stunt, would later become known as the Crawls. Not entirely trusting of her husband's word, the lady then placed a curse upon the request, saying that she would damn the family to ruin if the dole was ever discontinued. Consequently, the strange tradition of handing out flour to the residents of the nearby villagers every year on Ladies' Day still continues, only having been broken once in its 800-year-long stint when it was halted by officials in 1796 after a rowdy crowd created disturbances during the distribution. The rest of the Tichborne family has been, by and large, fairly anonymous as far as minor British aristocracy goes. In 1621, Benjamin Tichborne was elevated to baronet and despite Chidiok Tichborne having been executed some years prior for plotting to assassinate the Queen with a band of conspirators, the family name prospered well until the late 19th century. On the 1st of August 1827, James Tichborne ended his 42 years as a bachelor when he married the significantly younger Henriette Felicity, a 24-year-old illegitimate child of French and English parents, themselves loosely related to past kings. With James being a hard-drinking, stuffy old Englishman with a crippled leg and Henriette a hard-headed, fierce young Frenchwoman, the relationship was often fraught with difficulties, many of which would be taken out upon their first child, Roger Charles Doughty Chichborne, who was born two years after their marriage on the 5th of January 1829. Suffering from chronic asthma, his mother thought him a weak, sickly child and infantilised him in the extreme dressing him in a blue frilly dress until the age of 12 in order to honour Mary, the mother of Jesus. This coddling was no doubt more intense after the Tichborne's next two children, both girls, died in infancy before their fourth child, a boy named Alfred, was born who did survive. By this point, Roger was already 10 and living in France with his mother who had grown tired of life in England and retired back to Paris, where Roger was schooled by a series of tutors that James Tichborne felt far below those suited to the heir to an English baronetcy. He remedied this in 1845 when Roger was 16 by essentially kidnapping his son whilst they were visiting England and installing him into the Jesuit College of Stonyhurst, a prestigious Catholic school in Lancashire that would turn him into the English gentleman that James expected him to be. Henriette was furious when she found out that James had stolen her fragile son away from her and ordered one of his Parisian tutors to kidnap him right back, though the attempt failed. During his time at Stonyhurst, Roger learned to be a member of the British upper classes, though his English remained shabby at best and he never quite managed to shake his thick French accent. He spent the holidays with his aunt and uncle, the Doughties, and enjoyed all the trappings of the ruling class, lording about, smoking, drinking hunting and reading saucy French novels in church, much to his aunt's disapproval. Despite a prominent nervous twitch and continual problems with asthma, he routinely wrote home to his mother, rebelling against her overbearing upbringing and insisting that he was far from the invalid that she believed him to be. Upon his graduation from school in 1848, his mother purchased a commission for him in the 6th Dragoon Guards, a distinguished cavalry unit of the British Army. 
Unfortunately for Roger, who was thrilled at the promise of travel and adventure, he was merely garrisoned in Ireland, where he spent a relatively quiet three years being promoted to lieutenant before leaving after the disappointment of a cancelled transfer to India destroyed any chances for him to lead an exotic adventure abroad. Throughout his time with the Dragoons, Roger had been developing a relationship with his cousin, Catherine Doughty, the 15-year-old daughter of his aunt and uncle, who had, until 1849, been away from the family home attending a convent school. When his aunt and uncle found out about the relationship, they forbade it to continue. This was not due to the fact that, as one might expect, that they were cousins. That sort of behaviour was, and still remains, perfectly acceptable amongst the British upper classes. But the issue was that his aunt thought Roger simply drank, swore and smoked too much, and that those blasted novels that he was always reading, full of French sauce, were just not fitting for the man who would marry their daughter. Roger wrote several letters contesting this with his aunt, promising her that he was smoking less and abstaining from drink, though it all fell on deaf ears, which is probably just as well, as it was all for show anyhow, and in reality, he continued doing everything just as much as he always had, aside from smoking, which he had cut back on due to the doctor's orders. Undeterred, he approached his uncle in 1852 and asked for Catherine's hand in marriage, a request which was promptly denied. Eventually, however, Catherine's parents gave in and agreed to allow the pair to marry if Catherine had reached the age of 21 and still remained single. In the meantime, however, they intended to do their utmost to cast her off onto the son of the first well-bred family that would take her. In something of a huff, Roger decided that he was going to finally experience the exotic adventure that he had so desired. He wrote Catherine a note, promising her he would return to England around her 21st birthday, and on the 1st of March, 1853, sailed from France, bound for South America. Just before he left, he also penned a second, somewhat mysterious note he sealed in an envelope and handed over to Vincent Gosford, the steward of the Doughty estate. It was a letter that would prove to be incredibly important, but not for quite some time yet. It was a long boat ride to South America, and Roger spent the days sailing across the Atlantic with his valet, John Moore, shooting at fish and birds, drinking and gambling. When the pair finally reached Santiago, it was to the sad news that his uncle, Sir Edward Doughty, had passed away and that he was now the next in line for the Tichborne baronetcy. Shortly after their arrival, his valet, Moore, fell ill, so Roger replaced him with a local servant and set off to explore. The next time that Moore saw him was when he triumphantly strolled back into the town, a completely changed man. His servant and all his luggage had notably been ditched, whilst his clothes were now covered in filth and the rough type expected of a man who spent his time trekking through the mountains and jungles. A dirty pea coat, waistcoat and necktie with a dapper round sailor's hat. A broken nose completed his new hardened look, which reflected just how much he had taken to the freedom of his new life of adventure. When he wrote to his mother to say as much, he told her, I am very fond of the kind of life of which I am leading, and as my health has always been very good, it is not likely that I shall give it up in a hurry. He spent his time in South America, travelling through Chile, Peru and Brazil before hitching a ride aboard a boat bound for the east coast of America from where he intended to sail back to England. That would have been his plan had he ever arrived in America. Shortly after sailing from Brazil aboard the Bella, the ship was wrecked in a storm and no survivors were ever found. 
The only sign of the wreck came from the discovery of one of the ship's lifeboats on the 26th of April, 1854, six days after it had departed from Brazil, empty and alone in the ocean. In 1862, Sir James Tichborne died, leaving Henriette a widow and passing the baronetcy on to Roger's younger brother, Alfred, who became the 11th baronet of Tichborne. It had been a harsh few years for Henriette, who had taken the news of Roger's loss at sea particularly hard. Things were not going to get much easier either, as Alfred, who had always been a rather eccentric figure, did his absolute best to bankrupt the Tichborne estate by embarking on a plan to build the world's largest yacht, which he would tour the oceans aboard, looking for his shipwrecked brother. Naturally, it would not be any old yacht, and he wrote up plans to make sure that it would be decked out with the most luxury of trimmings, and it was only his premature death in 1866 that saved the family's wealth from his confused schemes. At the time of his death, his wife was pregnant with their son, Alfred Joseph, who became the 12th baronet. As much as Alfred's plans had been fairly misguided, they weren't founded on thin air, and in truth, Henriette had been seeking any news of Roger since the moment that she had heard the news of his being shipwrecked, refusing to believe that her son was dead. Pretty soon, she had become infamous in the surrounding area as an easy mark for a hungry sailor in need of a good meal, and she found herself frequently hosting old sea hands who were happy to spin her stories and faded rumours of ships that may have picked up survivors of the Bella on their way to Australia. In 1863, she placed an advert in the Times, seeking further information and offering a healthy reward. A handsome reward will be given to any person who can furnish such information as will discover the fate of Roger Charles Tichborne. He sailed from the port of Rio Janeiro on the 20th of April 1854 in the ship La Bella and has never been heard of since. But a report reached England to the effect that of a portion of the crew and passengers of a vessel of that name was picked up by a vessel bound to Australia, Melbourne. It is not known whether the said Roger Charles Tichborne was amongst the drowned or saved. He would at present time be about 32 years of age, is of a delicate constitution, rather tall, with a very light brown hair and blue eyes. Mr Tichborne is the son of Sir James Tichborne, baronet, now deceased, and is heir to all of his estates. The advertiser is instructed to state that the most liberal reward will be given for any information that may definitely point out his fate. As far as the rest of the family were concerned, the advert was a long shot at best. Most thought Henriette desperately sad, clinging on to the hope given to her by a bunch of unscrupulous sailors looking for a hot meal. Within six months of the original news of the shipwreck, the rest of the family had already moved on, and his insurance had paid out before the arrival of the first anniversary of the sinking. Catherine, married in October of 1854, no doubt the relief of Lady Doughty, but Henriette could not bear to lose so much. Stories eventually cycled back to the estate that she had become something of a feature down at the docks, paying sailors for any news they may have of Roger as they stepped ashore, which many were, of course, happy to furnish her with. 10,000 miles away, under the request of Henriette, Arthur Cubitts of the Missing Friends Office, an agency specialising in rediscovering lost British convicts in Australia, posted an advert in the Australian papers, promising a handsome reward for any well-authenticated particulars concerning the lost Roger Charles Tichborne. It promised to be a nice windfall if he could dig up anything on his client's missing son. 
It would have been with no small amount of excitement then when he read a reply from a solicitor from the colonial outpost town of Wagga Wagga who said he knew Roger Tichborne, who he assured Cubbitts was very much alive and well. Thomas Castro was a good fit for Wagga Wagga. At five foot nine inch tall, he was a lank, sketchy looking 30 something, dressed in the characteristic grubby clothes of the working class pioneers of the Australian frontier. He worked as a butcher in the town of Wagga Wagga, 280 miles west and inland from Sydney. Settled 30 years previously and proclaimed officially as a town in 1849, by the 1860s it had advanced pretty well with a bank, post office, hotel, blacksmith, a single-roomed public school, and other general amenities. There was even a series of bridges that had been built across the Murrumbidgee River that wound its way snake-like through the town. Despite these advances of the town, it still managed to retain a certain rough edge due to its proximity to the bush, which maintained it as a popular haunt for bush rangers and other less desirables looking for a place to lay low or forge a life under a new identity. The local paper, the Wagga Wagga Express, had a weekly column listing the bush ranging for the week, and there were several incidents of shootings within Wagga Wagga itself by some fairly infamous names, such as Daniel Morgan and Flash Clark, who were described as some of the most bloodthirsty ruffians that ever took to the bush. However, this edge was never enough to deter settlers from coming to the town, and fields gradually sprawled outwards, with farmers growing oats and wheat, maize and barley, while solicitors and businessmen set up shop on the main strips. Thomas Castro operated a butcher's shop attached to the back of the hotel. Like most things in his life, the shop was grubby and run down and financially on the verge of bankruptcy. He lived with his pregnant wife and a literate Irish barmaid, Mary Ann Bryant, in a single-room shack that looked little more than a slum. Upon his marriage certificate to Mary, he was listed as a Chilean, and though he could fumble his way through a Spanish conversation, he wasn't kidding most people, who were quite sure that despite the name and the fancy backstory, his roots were English, changing one's name in the bush was nothing new, and besides, everyone knew that Castro wasn't short for a few stories. In the bars, he often hinted to anyone that would listen of how he was destined for better things, about his moneyed family that he had run away from to live a life of freedom. Everyone who heard the stories laughed them off, They'd heard it all before from Castro and countless others. Besides, could anyone really believe that an English genteel would be out there hacking up pigs and living in poverty when they had the choice of pretty much anything else? There was one man in Wagga Wagga who believed Castro though, or at least who wanted to believe Castro. William Gibbs was a solicitor and was fairly new in town. He'd bought out the previous law firm and taken on not only their client book and premises, but all the debts owed to them by previous clients. Castro now owed Gibbs £6 for legal services in the small claims courts, and Gibbs knew that he had next to no chance of squeezing it out of the penniless butcher. In a meeting with Castro, Gibbs suggested he declared himself bankrupt, but rather than get angry or upset, he instead asked the solicitor what would happen if he declared himself bankrupt but then later came into a good sum of money. Gibbs asked him if he was expecting to, his ears pricking up at the thought that his debts might actually be paid, but Castro just went on as usual, hinting at a future of riches that would be coming his way some day or other. It was enough for Gibbs to push the matter. In another meeting between the pair ten days later, Castro continued hinting at how he'd been shipwrecked out of Brazil 
and had been running from an overbearing family. That night, Gibbs spoke to his wife about his client's mysterious manner and was shocked when she dashed off to retrieve a copy of the Sydney Morning Herald, pointing out an advertisement on the front page as she marched back into the living room. It was Cubbets's wanted ad, seeking information on Roger Tichborne from Henriette, but didn't it seem to fit the sort of story that Castro had been talking about, she said to her husband. Gibbs had to admit that it did ring a few bells, and he slapped down the paper in a wave of excitement. When he met with Castro the next evening, he decided to just confront the butcher head on, knowing that he'd unlikely to get anything but vague half-tales if he tried to eke anything out of him gently. As he expected, however, Castro cut him off short. He read the advertisement that Gibbs had handed him and declared it nothing to do with him at all. But Gibbs wasn't buying it. Pushing Castro further only seemed to annoy him more. Eventually, Castro stormed off, leaving Gibbs waving the newspaper in the air. Deciding on a different angle, Gibbs instead wrote to Arthur Cubitt asking for more details on Roger Tichborne. He didn't want to play his whole hand just yet, but he told the investigator that he had spotted a man he thought may be Roger Tichborne some time ago and asked after his education, health and his reason for leaving England in the first place. With these details, he assured Cubitt, he could nail down his suspicions, of which he already had scarce any doubt. If Castro himself had been vague and guarded, Cubitt was not much better. When he replied to Gibbs, he could only tell him that he had left home from caprice and not necessity, though he was unsure of the particulars. More than anything, he urged Gibbs not to push Castro too hard, sure that he would likely bolt or lean into his denial if he really did intend to stay hidden in Australia. When Gibbs next saw Castro, however, he seemed to have had something of a change of heart. During a discussion on his real name, Castro pulled out a pipe and flashed it at the solicitor. Scratched into the bowl with the initials RCT. It was enough to convince Gibbs, who whisked him into his office, where he began a thorough interrogation. Where had Castro picked up that nervous twitch? And where had he learnt Spanish? Eventually, Castro began to crack. If he really was this Tichborne, he suggested, what would he have to do to prove it? Gibbs knew he wouldn't like the answer, but with a sigh, admitted that he'd likely have to go back to England to prove his identity. Castro turned frosty straight away. He wasn't interested. He had a new family in Australia now. He had no intention of ever returning to England. But Gibbs reminded him of his debts, and of how he would be the heir to a vast amount of property and money if only he'd swallow his pride and just take a little trip. The night wound up with Castro relenting to Gibbs, who penned a letter to cover as soon as he left. In it, he explained that Castro would be willing to travel to England, providing his identity would not be revealed to anyone for another five months, in March of 1866, after the birth of his daughter. He also wanted Gibbs to keep his Australian marriage to Mary a secret from his family in England, and lastly, that he could be supported with enough money to keep Mary afloat until he returned to Australia. Naturally, Gibbs had already agreed to all three, even agreeing in principle to front the money to support Mary himself. After all, he saw Castro as something of an investment now. If he could split the reward from Henriette with Cubitt, he could earn more out of this than all the legal work in Wagga Wagga would gain him in years. Besides, he had another plan for the money anyway. If Henriette was so desperate to see her son again, Surely she'd be able to advance the money. And if Roger Tichborne really was the heir to a large estate, including the £14,000 annual income it provided, the old lady must have the money. Cubitt was on more or less the same page as Gibbs. 
For him, sending Roger Tichborne home would be his big payout after years of scratching around, seeking out lost convicts. After receiving a letter from Gibbs, who reassured him that he was now sure that Castro was Tichborne, he wrote to Henriette to let her know that, provisionally, her son seemed to have been found. It was, of course, a precarious situation. He informed her that her son was not in the position to get himself back home to England. In fact, he could not even get himself to Sydney. Unfortunately, Henriette was not quite as wealthy as both Gibbs and Cubitt had expected. Alfred Tichborne had only just died, saving the family from a second bankruptcy, and Henriette informed them that she intended to pay the reward for finding Roger out of the wealth that he would inherit when he claimed the baronetcy. This meant that if Thomas Castro did decide to return to England, it would have to be off his own back, an outcome that Gibbs knew was impossible. It was a long five months for Gibbs, and whilst he and Cubitt spent their time doing their utmost to cut one another out of one another's share of the reward, Castro continued to sting Gibbs for every penny that he could, including asking the solicitor to pay his wife's midwife bills for the delivery of their child. Now the child was finally born, however, it did mean that he could go to public with their discovery of Roger Tichborne, potentially relieving them of any more of the financial burden, since Castro would be able to use his real family name to secure loans relatively easily. As one problem seemed to fade though, another one would crop up, and Gibbs was now tasked with getting Castro to write a letter to Henriette, who had written to her son, begging him to return to her and end her loneliness. Castro did write back, albeit in a shabby hand, laced with spelling errors and calling his mother the wrong name. But Henriette didn't mind, reasoning that after all this time spent in the Australian bush, it's possible he should have forgotten English, or at least that he should not write as correctly as one could wish, she said. He also took a series of photographs of Castro in the yard outside of his office to send back to Henriette along with the letter. When it arrived, Henriette seemingly accepted Castro as her son and with Gibbs as guarantor, Castro was able to secure himself a loan from the Australian Joint Stock Bank in Wagga Wagga. The manager had been pretty shocked to find out that scrubby old Tom Castro the butcher was in fact Sir Roger Charles Tichborne, an English baronet, but he agreed to a three-month loan in order to allow Castro to pay off his debts, and along with several other loans that Gibbs had managed to secure by quietly promoting Castro as a somewhat unorthodox investment to some of Wagga Wagga's businessmen, the pair managed to gather enough money to pay for Castro to travel back to England. Pleased as punch, Castro did his best to keep matters to himself, telling the locals that he was returning to England to collect a modest inheritance and that he would soon be back. He set off towards Sydney with Gibbs on the 2nd of June 1866, dropping his wife and infant daughter off at Mary's mother along the way. When he arrived in Sydney, Castro fully discarded his old name and began referring to himself as Sir Roger Tichborne. He also found his responsibilities ramping up. Henriette had arranged for him to meet with Francis Turville, private secretary to the Governor of New South Wales and firm family friend of the Tichbornes. Though Roger Tichborne had never actually met Turville before, Henriette asked him to seek him out and be a friend to her son. Turville met with Roger and asked him to describe his mother. Roger did so happily, casting his mind back and remembering her as a stout and very tall large woman. This perplexed Turville somewhat, since the Henriette that he had known had been a short, skeletal old lady. But it was seemingly a small discrepancy as he wrote to his sister the following day describing the meeting convinced that he had met with Roger Tichborne, back from the dead. I noted, though I hardly liked to write it, 
a look about the eyes and mouth which strongly reminded me of his father. His upper front teeth were all missing, and he was, I can assure you, dirty enough, both in person and in dress for even a colonial butcher. His English, too, a little butchery at times. Settling down in Sydney, Roger had a change of plans. He called for Mary and his daughter to come to Sydney at once and accompany him to England. It probably had something to do with Henriette's last letter, inquiring whether or not Roger had married in Australia, and if he had, she was keen to know that he had been married in a Catholic church. Promptly, a marriage was arranged, and the pair married again, this time in a church, and the name of Roger Tichborne was signed on the certificate. The new couple spent the next three months lording it up at the Metropolitan Hotel in Sydney, working their way through the bank loans. His story had finally broken into the press, and with it, a newfound minor celebrity status, Roger Tichborne lived it up, drinking and socialising with an altogether different class of people than he had been recently used to. The story in the papers had, however, also managed to draw out more of the Tichborne contingent, and Roger was visited by several old friends of his from back in his days in England. Michael Gifoyle, the one-time head gardener of Tichborne Park, travelled to Sydney with his wife, to catch up with Roger after reading his story in the papers and was keen to satisfy his own curiosity about Roger's shocking return. He was probably fairly disappointed when Roger met him with a blank expression, completely unaware of who he was. In fairness, the pair had only met once before and it had been decades prior, but he did feel that it was somewhat strange that Roger had been unable to tell him any more about the rest of the Tichborne family. Andrew Bogle had been another visitor Bogle had been Sir Edward Doughty's valet and had been very good friends with Roger back in the days that he had stayed with his aunt and uncle. Aside from his weight, which Roger had been steadily gaining since leaving Wagga Wagga, Bogle recognised Roger immediately and filled him in with all the family gossip that he had been privy to before he had left to Australia himself. The pair spent the next few days together catching up before Roger invited him to travel back to England with him. Bogle agreed and joined Roger's growing entourage that now included himself, his wife and child, Bogle, a nurse for his child and secretary. Everyone's rooms in the Metropolitan were easily paid for by all the advances that Roger was clocking up using the Tichborne name. The whole gang sailed for England aboard the Rakaia on the 2nd of September 1866. In the three months that he had spent in Sydney, Roger Tichborne had gorged himself at fancy dinner parties so much that he weighed a cool £250, a physical reflection of the life of extravagance that he had been living on the Tichborne name. The day before he left the Metropolitan Hotel, he agreed to buy the whole place for £10,000, leaving the manager with a cheque for a London bank that had no connections with the Tichborne family at all. In the days before they left, Bogle wrote a letter to Lady Doughty to inform her of their coming triumphant return. Until now, Henriette had gone to some pains to keep her reconnection with Roger quiet, knowing that the rest of the family thought her crazy for trying to seek out her long-lost son. But now the cat was well and truly out of the bag. Sir Roger Charles Tichborne was coming home. Thomas Castro, a.k.a. Roger Tichborne, a.k.a. The Claimant, as he would soon come to be known throughout the world, touched down in England on Christmas Day 1866 via Panama and New York. It had been a long journey from Australia and the claimant had grown yet more stout. As soon as he arrived, he arranged to employ a solicitor, John Holmes, before heading out to the village of Aylesford. 
knowing that he would be sure to wander across people that knew Roger Tichborne in his younger days, he registered at his inn under a fake name and bizarrely walked around the small village with a handkerchief partially covering his face, a move made no less ridiculous considering he was accompanied by Bogle, who everyone recognised at once. His arrival in England was met with a tempered interest from the press, who for the most part printed small, single-paragraph stories on his visit to the village and of how he had been immediately recognised and acknowledged by his tenantry and by the inhabitants of the neighbourhood. This wasn't exactly the truth, and rather more a yarn told by the solicitor John Holmes. The claimant, as the press now called him, had actually met with some heavy opposition to his presence already when he ran into Frederick Bowker, the solicitor representing both Lady Teresa Tichborne, Alfred Tichborne's widow, and the infant Henry Alfred Joseph Doughty Tichborne, the current heir to the Tichborne estate. Frederick's brother, James, also a solicitor, was representing Henriette in Paris, and both brothers had been warning their clients against the claimant for some time. James had initially told Henriette, after examining Castro's letters from Australia, that it was nothing more than an impudent attempt at extortion. Now, Frederick Bowker was here in Alsford to track down the claimant and let him know in no uncertain terms, that if he intended to go ahead with his claim to the estate, then he would have to do so in a court of law. When he did track him down at the Swan Inn, the claimant would only speak with him through his hands, which he used to cover his face. Once he realised who Bowker was, he shut him down immediately, yelling at him to get out, whilst Bowker threw down his ultimatum. If he really did claim to be Roger Tichborne, then he should expect a battle in court before storming out of the inn. The newly hired solicitor, John Holmes, was put straight to work, drafting out a letter to Bowker, officially laying out his client's claim to the estate, before contacting the press to feed them the aforementioned story concerning the glowing success of the visit to Alsford. It was a battle that both the claimant and Holmes expected, and they now had to put themselves out onto the front line. Henriette had been in Paris when the claimant arrived in England, and so he quickly made plans to travel out to meet her at her home at La Place de la Madeleine in the centre of the city. Henriette had also been expecting a contest with the rest of the Tichborne family, whom she knew thought her crazy for believing Roger to still be alive, and she wrote to the claimant several times, requesting that he visit Paris as soon as he could, warning him of the snares that would lay in his way in London. She was, she wrote in grave terms, his only and best friend, it was not just a return of her overbearing motherly instincts either. Several pieces in the press that week called out the claimant as a fraud, including a long piece in the Irish Saunders newsletter that called Roger's return so improbable as to be incredible. The claimant and his solicitor Holmes arrived in Paris on the 10th of January and arranged for the dramatic reunion the following day. Sadly, the claimant had to deliver the news that he was still feeling seasick from his journey and would have to call the whole thing off. Henriette, not happy with having her dream whisked away at such a late hour, arranged instead to meet the claimant in his hotel room. How much of this was an ingenious masterstroke to draw Henriette into the meeting without her solicitors is anyone's guess, but that's exactly what happened when the old lady entered the dimly lit hotel room to come face to face with her long-lost son. Or at least face to handkerchief, as the claimant had once more taken to covering his face. Lying on the bed, fully clothed, he called over to Henriette, who sat next to him, pulled off the covering and gasped in shock. Oh, my dear Roger, she exclaimed before bursting into tears. She was sure that he looked just like his father, with his uncle's ears. 
With Henriette convinced of her son's return, the claimant was able to relax and the pair spent the next week in Paris. Holmes arranged for a medical inspection from a pair of doctors to further cement the claim and then happily sent out a notice to all the London papers confirming the story. So many vague statements have appeared in the press with reference to Sir Roger Tichborne. I think it right to inform you that I accompanied him and another gentleman to Paris on the 10th of January where his mother, the Dowager Lady James Doughty Tichborne, instantly recognised and acknowledged Sir Roger as her son and has spent the last ten days with him. I only returned yesterday evening and have brought with me the necessary declarations of Sir Roger's identity, taken at the British Embassy, in his presence, and that of Her Ladyship and the two most distinguished English physicians in Paris. Acting under the advice of counsel, Sir Roger will now take the requisite steps to obtain possession of his estates. At the end of the ten-day sojourn into Paris, Henriette decided to return to England with the claimant in order to better protect him from his opposition. It was now time to set up something for the claimant and his family for the longer term as they were currently living off the good heart of Holmes who, much like Gibbs in Australia, had taken on the financial burden of the claimant as a form of investment. The claimant, along with his family and entourage, were set up in a permanent residence at Essex Lodge in Croydon whilst Holmes set about raising funding for the impending civil trial. Over the following months, the claimant surrounded himself with everyone he could on board from Roger's past, including close family friend Francis Bargent, who along with his mother provided him with diaries and entire folios of information pertaining to the life of Roger Tichborne. He contacted old army friends and reacquainted himself with his days in the army, even employing several of them and moving them into his new house as servants. The tackle shop owner near Tichborne, where Roger had spent much of his time fishing, had even given the claimant a positive ID when he found that he had purchased the exact same tackle that Roger had always used back in his youth. But it wasn't all easy going. Henriette's brother visited the claimant and refused to believe that he was Roger, not least because he could not understand French, but also because he seemed to not recognise the handwriting of a letter that he showed him that he later revealed to be from Roger's father. He also noted that, upon their meeting, the claimant addressed him as uncle, something he had never done before. It seemed that for every witness the claimant's side could gather, the Tichborne side could match it, though Bogle, Bygent and Henriette remained fairly strong trump cards for the claimant. In March, the Tichborne family lined up their own heavy hitters, and Percival Radcliffe, the husband of Roger's childhood sweetheart Catherine Doughty, carried out a surprise visit to the claimant, along with Vincent Gosford, Roger's aunt and cousin, and Catherine herself. All three women were introduced to the claimant by Percival, whilst wearing a veil covering their faces. It was, perhaps, reasonably understandable, given the length of time that he'd not seen any of them, and the fact that they had chosen to cover their faces, that he was unable to recognise who any of them were, though he did throw out a few names anyway, all of which were wrong. Things got a little more heated when his aunt and cousin removed their veils and the claimant was still at a loss for who they were, leading to the two women to storm out of the room, leaving Percival and Catherine, who had watched on quietly the whole time. Percival next brought in Gosford, where the meeting ended perhaps even more badly after the claimant was tested on his French. Instead of replying, the claimant launched him backwards through the doors behind him. The party left the room, convinced that the claimant was little more than a fraud though Catherine had not lifted her own veil, nor said a word throughout the whole meeting. She had every reason to be less boisterous, because she was nowhere near as confident as her husband that the claimant was a fraud. Instead, 
She thought that his eyes, eyebrows and forehead all had a resemblance to those of Rogers, and so too did the way that he spoke, though she was thrown off by the fact that he had spoken her name as Katie rather than Catty, which he had always used to call her. She requested to see the claimant again, however Holmes had already cast off a letter to the Tichborne solicitors, condemning them for allowing Percival's surprise appearance and ensuring them that they would never be provided the same opportunity again as a consequence. For most people, the fact that the claimant seemed unable to remember whole swathes of information and was unable to recognise dozens of people that Roger Tichborne had spent so much time with seemed a little bit strange, but the claimant simply maintained his go-to answer rule, that anything he couldn't remember could easily be attributed to a loss of memory he had suffered due to having been shipwrecked. For those that struggled to identify him as Roger, or even flatly denied that he was Roger, the answer was plainly obvious, and even more forgivable. Since his time in England, the claimant had been ripping through alcohol and cigars wholesale as long as dining on extravagant feasts day after day. In a little over three months, he'd managed to stack on another £50 and was now a rather solid £300, a considerable transformation from his sickly, lank, younger days. As Holmes geared up to post their case to the Chancery Court for the claimant's bills against the Tichborns, he watched over his client like a hawk, pushing him to hobnob amongst the genteel classes, reforming and re-strengthening all of his ties that he had to his old friends. At the same time, Henriette was watching just as closely, insisting that he should do exactly the opposite. All the crowd were enemies, she insisted. He would do far better to stay at home with her, his one true friend. Someone else was watching him too, however. Inspector Jonathan Witcher, one-time founding member of the Scotland Yard Detective Agency and now private detective, had been watching the claimant for weeks and had come to the conclusion that something about his story was not matching up at all. He finished writing several letters to the members of the Autumn family and waited for their reply. If it was as he expected, then he would not only be able to prove that the claimant was not Roger Tichborne, he'd be able to deliver the claimant's real identity. Born on the 20th of March, 1834, Arthur Orton grew up in the back of a butcher's shop in Wapping, East London, a Docklands area of the Thames River bordering Whitechapel and the Tower of London. His parents, George and Mary Orton, had been pretty busy and Arthur was the 12th Orton child and the family had something of a rough and ready reputation, despite their relatively prosperous butcher's business. Arthur was better known to his friends as Slobbery Orton due to the way he dribbled out of one side of his mouth, an unfortunate residual symptom of Sindenum's chorea, or as it was known then, St Vetus's dance, that he had suffered when he was nine years old. One moment he had had trouble gripping things with his hands and the next he was given to full body spasms. Over time he had recovered almost completely but the drooping face and occasional twitch told his past and gave him quite an unusual appearance and a reputation for being a little cracked. As if Slobbery Orton wasn't a bad enough nickname for any young schoolboy then his other nickname, the Fat Boy, probably wasn't much improvement. It was probably with some relief then that on his 14th birthday his parents decided to apprentice him aboard the brig the ocean like four of his elder brothers arthur would leave london and his parents overcrowded home to seek a life at sea he was away for three years before he returned to london in 1851 a much harder young man though still with the occasional twitch he had by now grown into his body however and the fat boy was no longer the butt of all the jokes nor much of a boy at all 
He ran errands for the family butcher shop for a while, but London no longer held much excitement for him, if it ever held any excitement at all. Instead, now had the idea of becoming a Spanish interpreter. He'd already decided on a new name for himself, Arturo Orton. Now all he needed to do was learn Spanish. Eleven months after his return, he set sail once more, taking care of a pair of ponies and some other livestock during their journey to Australia. It was a job of two sides, and on the flip side, he took the role of the ship's butcher. Jonathan Witcher had been watching the claimant since the moment he'd stepped off the boat in London, and ever since, had been tracing every name he had come across in his ever-evolving theory of who the man really was. Because much like his employers, the Tichborne family, he didn't believe he was Roger Tichborne at all. In the run-up to the Chancery Court hearing, Witcher had managed to strike out a whole host of ex-Tichborne servants and potential illegitimate children, and had been following up on a lead from Australia that had tossed up the name Orton. The Tichborne solicitors had also hired a Scottish private detective, John Mackenzie, who had made his home in Australia. Mackenzie's job had been to dig into Thomas Castro's past, and he had almost immediately discovered that the man who had apparently given Roger Tichborne his first job after his arrival in Australia could not remember him at all. When shown a picture of the claimant, they had given Mackenzie a confused look, and explained that it was not a photo of Tichborne, but of a man named Arthur Orton. Orton had been found in several books of records from places that the claimant had claimed to have been, but strangely enough, Thomas Castro never seemed to make an appearance. Witnesses remembered Orton, telling Mackenzie that he had come from London, and one even recalled being told that Orton had originally learnt butchery in his father's shop in Wapping. Back in London, Witcher had been to visit Orton's sisters, a Mrs Tredger and a Mrs Jury, but when he had shown the picture of the claimant, they denied outright that he was their brother. It appeared for a while that it was the end of the line for this particular line of inquiry, but Witcher had not been entirely convinced by the Orton sisters. Shortly after Witcher's visit to their home in Wapping, Mrs Treasure and Mrs Jury paid a visit to Holmes to let him know that Witcher had been sniffing around and asking them questions about the claimant. They told Holmes that Witcher believed the claimant to be Arthur Orton, but the lad denied it categorically. When he found out about it, the claimant decided to put them on the payroll along with Arthur Orton's brother, Charles, offering them a monthly stipend as long as they would stick to their story that Arthur Orton and the claimant were not the same man. Armed with this new information, the claimant too enlisted the aid of a detective in Australia, Otto Berliner, who gathered an equal amount of evidence from those that had known both Thomas Castro and Arthur Orton and could show that they were two different men. For starters, Orton was consistently described as having a pock-marked face, something the claimant certainly did not have. Still, the news from the other side was troubling for the claimant's team, and both Henriette, as well as the rich backers who had been bankrolling his expenses until now, were keen to secure proof of the existence of Orton. Even more pressing was the imminent arrest of the claimant for his avoidance of a number of debts that had been piling up since his arrival in England. In order to escape the police and the debt collection agencies, he decided to take a quiet holiday in France where he would lay low for a while, whilst Holmes could smooth the whole thing out. More rich backers had to be found who could pay off his debts, which Holmes somehow managed to arrange, finally allowing the claimant to return to England. More bad news for the claimant was coming, however, as when he arrived back in London on the 12th of March 1868, it was to the news that Henriette had passed away. It was the single most critical blow to the claimant's case. At the inquest, both sides of the case accused the other of having her killed, 
but it was with some relief to all when the medical evidence assured the room that her death had been entirely natural. The claimant attended her funeral at Tichborne Place and cried throughout the entire service. Henriette's death was not only a blow to the case in the form of the loss of an important witness, but it also signalled the loss of any income for the claimant who had been living off her monthly handouts. Once more, he turned to wealthy investors to fire up a subscription, which eventually saw his income actually increase. The Orton thread had continued to cause problems too, when Arthur Orton's brother, Charlie, came out for the Tichborns, adjusting his statement, which now said that Arthur Orton had spent time in South America before he had sailed to Australia. It was clearly critical that the claimant could collect enough evidence to put this story to bed, and so Holmes, realising that it would be too expensive to enlist tens, if not hundreds of witnesses to travel to England, arranged for the claimant to sail to South America and then on to Australia, along with a small contingent, in order to gather as many statements as they could that separated Orton from the claimant and prove once and for all that they were two separate men. As can probably be guessed, things didn't go quite to plan. After the claimant jumped ship in Buenos Aires and then made no efforts to join up with his men in Chile, instead choosing to drink, smoke and party with a slew of British gentlemen expats before sacking off the whole thing entirely and sailing back to England alone. It was the last straw for Holmes, who had been having serious misgivings for some time. He threw in the towel and retired from the case, billing the claimant over £5,000 for fees which he was quite sure he would never see. The claimant employed a new solicitor, Frederick Moon, and somehow, despite being entirely bankrupt, continued to fund a lifestyle that included 13 pints of whiskey and 150 cigars per week. Just part of his lavish lifestyle that allowed him to continue to increase in weight to over £375. Moving into a house nearby to Tichborne Park, he nonchalantly continued to hobnob with the English gentry, hunting and shooting, and whilst this may have seemed like a blatant disregard to reality to some, it was in fact working rather well for the claimant, who was managing to convince swathes of well-to-do people that he was almost definitely Roger Tichborne. After all, they told themselves, no commoner could possibly hunt as well as the claimant, Therefore, he simply must be Roger. Meanwhile, Moon had been working on a new plan, and shortly after being hired by the claimant, he unleashed something of a masterstroke in the form of a bond scheme that would allow anyone in the public realm to buy a stake in the claimant's case for £65. The holder of the bond would be entitled to claim back £100 within a week of the claimant successfully regaining control of the Tichborne estate. Not only did this raise over £40,000 for the claimant's legal fees, but it also gave the public a vested interest in the case, turning the tide of public opinion almost overnight. All of a sudden, it seemed everyone was rooting for the claimant. He then proceeded to do perhaps the second smartest thing, by taking his share of the money raised to pay for his fees so far, and resigned from the case, handing it over to the claimant's new solicitor, Markham Spothoff. The new solicitor's employ came just in time, as a date for the trial was finally scheduled for November of 1870 though this was eventually delayed until the spring of 1871 due to the Prussian invasion of Paris. After almost five years, it was finally time for the claimant to prove to the world that he was Roger Tichborne. The claim for the Tichborne estate took place in the Court of Common Pleas in Westminster Hall, London, and finally began on Wednesday the 10th of May, 1871. Giving something of a clue as to how the hearing would unravel, the first day was something of a disaster, after only three members of the jury turned up for duty. 
The day was forfeit, and the court sent out warnings to the rest of the jury members, which resulted in six more showing the following day, leaving the court still three men short of a full jury. Neither side were willing to start the trial with only nine men, and so the court did their best to rustle up another two members, finally allowing the hearing to kick off that afternoon in front of a jury of 11. Unsurprisingly, the courtroom was deemed to be too small for the gathering crowds that vied to secure themselves a seat in the audience for the proceedings each morning, and so the whole thing was moved to a much larger courtroom, which just as quickly became filled to the rafters with excited onlookers. Over the following months, they would watch literally hundreds of witnesses take the stand to give testimony for and against the claimant, giving a good representation of the confusion that both sides had uncovered in Australia concerning the identity of Arthur Orton. The big problem that everyone had quickly realised was that in a post-transportation world, many men in Australia routinely used fake names, especially if they had had a convict past, and very few of them had any scruples as to which name they would decide to use. In many cases, they would just take the name of another man that they had met in a different town. This had made tracing the elusive Orton incredibly difficult, and a slew of testimonies that both supported and contradicted the claimant's insistence that he was not Arthur Orton was put on full display to the courtroom. The evidence for the claimant included the fact that several people could remember Roger Tichborne's French always being very poor, and several more were sure that he had already forgotten a great deal of the language during his time in South America. Physically, people were invited to scrutinise the claimant's ears and eyebrows, which almost all the witnesses said bore a strong family resemblance to the Tichborns. Both Roger Tichborne and the claimant appeared to have had a nervous twitch, and a doctor gave medical evidence that showed the two men had been treated for chronic sore throat and a poor chest, though this probably had more to do with the claimant's cigar habit than anything else. In a few exciting days, the claimant gave his, by now, well-repeated story of how he had wound up in Australia. He told the court of how he had been shipwrecked aboard the Bella during a storm, and with maybe seven other survivors, escaped on a longboat, eventually being picked up by a passing ship named the Osprey, which had taken him to Melbourne, arriving in July of 1854. When he arrived in Australia, he said he had been penniless, so he pawned his only remaining property of any worth a ring emblazoned with the Tichborne family seal. He took on the pseudonym of Thomas Castro, which he said was the name of a man he had known in Chile, and then bounced around Australia taking on various jobs in various cities until he had wound up in Wagga Wagga, where he decided to set up shop with his butchers and settle down. He spent four years in Wagga Wagga before meeting Gibbs and deciding to come out as the long-lost Roger Tichborne. When he was cross-examined on particular details that he could not recall, both about the shipwreck and Roger Tichborne's early life, he waved them away, saying that the shipwreck and the period of hard living in Australia had caused him to forget many things. In retaliation, the defence had something of a trump card in their pocket when they revealed to the court that Roger Tichborne was known to have had a tattoo on his arm of a heart, cross and anchor with his initials RCT written underneath, a tattoo which the claimant obviously did not have. The problem with this evidence, however, was that just as many people could not recall ever seeing a tattoo on Roger's arm, including his own mother, despite the fact that he was supposed to have had it done at the age of 11, and when several people were asked to draw the tattoo design, the sketches often came out looking very different to one another. There was, much to the excitement of the press and the public, a wonderful dose of scandal when the claimant was asked what had been written in the sealed letter that Roger Tichborne had handed over to his friend, Vincent Gosford, just before leaving for South America. Despite his efforts to squirm out of answering the question, he eventually admitted 
that he had instructed Gosford to only open the letter in the event of his death or of Catherine's confinement. The contents, he told a wide-eyed audience, detailed the news that Catherine had believed herself to be pregnant with Roger Tichborne's child and Roger was writing to his friend asking him to arrange for her to be taken care of until his return from South America, at which point he said that he would marry her. The court burst out with a shocked explosion of noise that called for a short adjournment whilst everyone could be given time to settle back down. It was the scandal that the press had hoped for and they pounced on it immediately, damning the claimant for bringing shame onto the Tichborne family name. The press, however, was not reading the public feeling altogether very well and whilst many people did turn against the claimant for his so-called womanising, deflowering ways, many more drew to support him. In court, the claimant had rather spectacularly failed to present his case. After six years of preparation time, he was seemingly blowing the whole thing by so often having to fall back on his worn-out excuse of having lived a hard life to explain why he could no longer answer so many details about Roger Tichborne. He did it so often that people believed that he could not possibly be trying to claim the estate by fraud because if he were, he would surely have made a much stronger effort. Likewise, the scandal of his cousin's suspected pregnancy drew many similar conclusions. Why would he drag the Tichborne name into the mud for absolutely nothing? For these people, the claimant's disastrous courtroom form only worked to bolster their belief in his case. Shortly after the scandal, the court was adjourned and was scheduled to restart in November. During the break, the claimant went back to a life of shooting and parading about. The Waxwork Museum, Madame Tussauds in London, even installed a waxwork figure of the claimant and public support soared so that when the proceedings restarted in November, the claimant was cheered into the courtroom by the crowds outside. The restart kicked off as it meant to go on and the defence opened with a speech that lasted for a full 26 days, making it the longest speech ever to have been aired in an English civil court, a record it held for more than 110 years. Somewhere within it, the defence pointed out to the court that they had no obligation to prove who the claimant really was, only to prove that he was not Roger Tichborne. However, they were pretty confident they could do both anyway, and suggested they had definitive proof that the claimant was in fact Arthur Orton, the butcher from Wapping. More witnesses were called before the jury finally opted to write a note to the judge, saying that they had made their decision and required no more evidence on March the 4th, 1872, almost a year after the trial had begun. Realising that it was likely that the jury had decided against the claimant, the claimant's solicitors filed for a non-suit, effectively abandoning the claim. Shortly after, for the claimant himself had decided to skip out on court that day, he was arrested for forgery and perjury. Thomas Castro, alias Arthur Orton, alias Sir Roger Charles Doughty Tichborne, as the warrant read, drove himself to Newgate Prison to await the next sessions. A bail of £10,000 was placed upon his release. As the result of the trial spread through the newspapers, opinion remained keenly split. Several papers crowed about how they had refrained from giving their own opinion during the trial so as to not influence the proceedings, but now declared that they were sure that he had been an imposter all along. Others declared the whole thing an outrage and a scandalous attack on the English gentry from a man who amounted to little more than a working-class oik. Even more, however, were simply confused as to what the result meant for the claimant now. With the jury cutting the trial short and the abandonment of the case, the question of the claimant's identity was still up in the air for many, including the bookies who had refused to pay out on any bets against the claimant, deciding instead to carry them over to the result of the upcoming perjury trial instead. The money to secure the claimant's bail was raised once more from wealthy backers, 
who saw the whole thing as an investment, as well as a significant portion that came from a public subscription after the claimant wrote a pleading letter from jail, which was published in the press, whereby he suggested that the impending trial was nothing less than a conspiracy against him. In a show of might against right, he claimed that the prosecution's use of multiple solicitors showed how they intended to crush the voice of the every man. Cruelly persecuted as I am, there is but one course that I can see, and that is to adopt the suggestion so many have made to me, v. to appeal to the British public for funds for my defence. And in doing so, I appeal to every British soul who is inspired by a love of justice and fair play, and who is willing to defend the weak against the strong. That I am Sir Roger Charles Doughty Tichborne, I solemnly declare, and which fact I have already proved by 86 witnesses, and will prove again by 200 more if necessary. And that I am not Arthur Orton, I will prove beyond the shadow of a doubt. The appeal was a resounding success, and as soon as he was released, the claimant embarked upon a national tour, riding the wave of public feeling and giving grandiose speeches to excited crowds, all of which were willing to pay for the privilege, turning himself into the complete showman that he'd always threatened to be, and using his argument of class conspiracy to fantastic effect. He would sprinkle his speeches with much embellished stories of his time adventuring in the Australian bush, and reinvented himself as a successful businessman whose only downfall had been his tendency to bet his income on horses. The tour played so much into the claimant's favour that despite the fact that travelling about the country actually broke the conditions of his bail, the police refused to lock him up, realising how it only bolstered the claims of conspiracy against him. With the money raised via this Tichborne Defence Fund, the claimant geared up to go once more to trial, which had been scheduled to begin on Wednesday, April 23rd, 1873. If people had been hoping for a shorter trial this time around, they were to be sorely disappointed, as opening speeches droned on for months on end once again. As it happened, the claimant's suggestion in his appeal letter that he would call 200 witnesses more if need be to prove his innocence was put to the test, with both the prosecution and the defence calling over 200 witnesses to the stand. On the more grounded level, evidence was given by the defence that tried to show Henriette as a good and honest lady whose word was entirely trustworthy, whilst they also called in medical experts to show that his seemingly random memory loss was actually entirely explainable by science. Things took off a little more, though, when his solicitor, a paranoid old eccentric, launched into the conspiracy angle with total abandon, claiming that attempts had been made on both his and the claimant's life. Things were then elevated even further when all of the women of the courtroom were asked to leave momentarily whilst the defence presented the evidence that the claimant's penis was so small as to be nothing but an orifice. This, the defence claimed, was a trait shared with Roger Tichborne, who had been made fun of by his military buddies and even referred to by his mother in the past. The jury was taken to the court's robing room to see the member of such excitement for themselves, where they confirmed the doctor's testimony to be quite true. Once they had taken their seats once more and the questioning returned to more savoury matters, the women were allowed back into their court, their fragile sensibilities left intact. There were also moments of contention between both the defence and the prosecution over the existence of the Osprey, the ship that had supposedly picked up Tichborne after the shipwreck and deposited him in Australia. Just like so many other details, conflicting testimonies were given, with dozens of witnesses swearing to the court that the ship did not exist, whilst just as many then claimed to have seen it with their own eyes. 
The prosecution focused mainly on trying to prove to the court that the claimant was Arthur Orton and tried to show evidence that proved that the claimant had simply created the reality of both Arthur Orton and Thomas Castro coexisting in the witness's memories by recalling real events but changing the names of the men he had been with to Arthur Orton. Finally, on February the 28th, 1874, eight years after he had agreed to come to England to claim the Tichborne estate as his own, the claimant had reached the conclusion of his journey. The jury had stepped out to deliberate for almost two and a half hours before returning to the courtroom to deliver to the judge a guilty verdict on two counts of perjury. The judge summed up for the audience and laid down a sentence of 14 years, a punishment, he told the claimant, wholly inadequate to your offence. At the conclusion, the trial had fairly easily taken the crown as the longest that the English legal system had ever seen, whilst the whole thing was estimated to have cost the Tichborne estate more than £90,000 in various legal fees. In wider society, the case was a direct influence on the creation of the False Personation Act that was pushed into law in 1874 in order to stop anyone attempting to copy the claimant's efforts to gain an inherited title by fraud. The press had a field day calling the Tichborne backers members of an insane delusion. In a testament to the strength of the conspiracy story weaved by the claimant, however, public opinion remained split, with the supporters still suggesting that it was all a story of the powers that be keeping the working man down. A Tichborne Release Association met and attempted to raise money for an appeal on retrial, but nothing ever materialised, and eventually the whole affair faded out of the public consciousness. In prison, the claimant continued to refer to himself as Roger Tichborne whilst he sewed prison clothes and lost over £200. Stories did filter out over the years, and when a reward was offered for information that would turn up Arthur Orton, a woman named Annie Alexander from Red Jacket in Australia came forward saying that she had been a lover of Roger Tichborne when they were teenagers until her uncle had sent her away to the colonies. Purely by chance, she then had met Thomas Castro in Australia and said that she recognised him immediately as Roger Tichborne. He told her all about his shipwreck and of his intention to hide himself away in Australia for a few years. Curiously, she also said that she was quite sure that Roger Tichborne had had no tattoos on his arms, though the validity of the story was never actually confirmed. In 1884, the claimant was released from prison four years early on grounds of good behaviour. Still insisting that he was Roger Tichborne, he joined a travelling circus, moved to New York, and then eventually back to London a year later, where he settled down, lecturing in various seedy theatres about his past, both as Roger Tichborne and his life in Australia as Thomas Castro. In 1895, things all changed when he wrote a confession for the people confessing to be Arthur Orton and stating that he had got himself wrapped up in the whole affair that went on to snowball so large that he just felt he simply couldn't get himself out of it. Just as his dwindling supporters were about to point towards the money he'd been paid in order to write the piece, however, the claimant himself wrote a second article that would appear in the News of the World where he recanted this confession, saying that he'd initially been paid to write an altogether different piece for the people, but had then been persuaded to masquerade as Arthur Orton to avoid a libel case. Three years later, he passed away after a period of ill health. In the obituaries, the papers referred to him as Arthur Orton, and stories were published retelling the case that also confidently concluded him to be the butcher from Wapping. When he was placed in the ground, he was in an unmarked grave, though the plaque screwed to the lid of the coffin bore the name Sir Roger Charles Doughty Tichborne. 
Nowadays, it's the generally accepted truth that the Tichborne claimant was Arthur Wharton. Despite the fact that he'd gone to his grave insisting he was Roger Tichborne, there appeared to never be any evidence that could solidly back his claims, and no other Arthur Wharton was ever produced to prove that they were two different men. So what exactly had gone on during the chaos that was the Tichborne claim? Was Henriette just so desperate for her son to be alive, and so lonely without either of her sons, that she simply played along, despite knowing that he was not her real son? Or had she just been so deluded that she'd managed to convince herself regardless? Had the legions of supporters been motivated only by greed, or had they seen something that they believed in and sought to gain justice? Equally, the wave of working-class support showed that a large portion of the public believed in the claimant too. Had they been fighting for his rights and freedoms, or were they fighting for their own? The case does seem to offer up an overwhelming flood of circumstantial evidence to prove the claimant was not Roger Tichborne, and it also gives a pretty convincing argument that he was Arthur Alden. But there are elements that sway in favour of the claimant's story too. Regardless, the truth is buried with Roger Tichborne himself, either out at sea off the coast of Brazil, or in a London graveyard beneath a brass plaque that bears his name. And that was the story of the Tichborne claimant. It's a funny one. And I have possibly a bit of a controversial theory. So we'll get into that after this uh, short advert breaks. So, yeah, the Tichborne claimant. Um, I, I suppose I should just come out with it with my controversial theory. It's generally accepted that the Tichborne claimant was Arthur Rawton like historians and generally just everyone sort of like academics tend to think that that it's Arthur Orton. I'm just not sure, you know. I think there's a lot more going on here and it's much more difficult and, and entwined and there's a lot. I think possibly it's true that he was Arthur Orton. I definitely don't think he was Roger. Well, I don't think he was Roger Tichborne. But what I do think was happening was a lot of tomfoolery, <laughs> because for sure, when you when you um, investigate the evidence about the tattoo, for example, is the big one for me. I don't think that the tattoo ever existed. I, I've seen people draw the tattoo and they drew it in completely different ways. Um, like witnesses sketch the tattoo out, and, so and and they weren't mistakes of memory either. They were completely different. So, so it was the, the tattoo was of a cross, a heart, and an anchor, right? And, and one of the people had drawn it as if this was a big cross in the background with a tattoo and anchor sort of inside the cross. The, the next person drew it literally as three small symbols of a tattoo, a cross, and an anchor, of a cross, anchor, and a heart, and just put them in a row, like like completely different designs. So I, I I genuinely think the tattoo was nonsense. The fact that other people suggested that they didn't even know that he had it. The fact that he supposedly have got it when he was age 11. It just, it doesn't make sense to me. And I don't think he had a tattoo. And I think that that evidence was sort of nonsense. There, there's a lot going on here that I didn't fit into this episode because the episode was already long. But it would have been obviously, I mean, it was a huge trial and, and there are, like transcripts of the whole trial which I, I, I've read so I couldn't include it all because it would have gone on forever but there are things that happen in the 
trial. So, for example, the, the tattoo evidence, there was evidence withheld from um, the claimant's side uh, so that they didn't know that they were going to produce this, this this evidence in court of the tattoo. Um, so that essentially it shouldn't have even been allowed. It should have been thrown out of court. Um, but it wasn't. Um, and, uh, yeah, that they... Um, he he basically couldn't answer it because obviously he wasn't expecting you know the the, the solicitor complained that he had no time to prepare anything you know like any any argument against it. Um, they did sort of check his arm and he he had a mark on his arm which a scar which um, uh, a me- medical guy said could have been from a tattoo removal but I don't think it was ever really claimed um, that it, that it was. Um, I think it was the bigger claim was just that it just didn't exist. Um, and and that's certainly seemed to be what what the claimant side argued for because they they got witnesses in to to say I, I never saw a tattoo, so yeah I, I sort of think like that evidence might have been fabricated, but whether or not that proves that it was Tichborne or not, I don't think it really helps because as I was sort of going back to what I was saying about the Tom Fuller and a lot going on, everything was circumstantial and I think both sides kind of knew that they didn't really have much of a case. So I wonder, it doesn't change the outcome. Like perhaps he was Arthur Orton, and, and and but this was their only way of really turning it up. There were some other things that really kind of nailed him on as Orton, especially there was a pocketbook in Australia that was quite a, a big piece of evidence. Um, I think I think it's a really tough one. I don't think it's, I don't, what I don't understand after all this time reading it, I'm personally not convinced that it was Arthur Orton or that he wasn't Roger Tichborne. So I don't understand why it's accepted, like why it's so accepted that he was. I think when you look at it, there was an overwhelming flood of circumstantial evidence that says that he was. Overwhelming. And I think if you want to be that sort of person, you can sit there and say, sure, okay, there's an overwhelming amount of evidence, like circumstantial evidence. I'm just going to accept that. But personally, I can't accept that. If I was on the jury, I'm not sure I would want to be sort of condemning a man to prison on that evidence, you know, um, because although there was a lot of it, it, it's all circumstantial at the end of the day. It's, it's all sort of he said, she said. Unfortunately, that's the whole, it basically turns out to be the whole case. I mean, there are very funny things, like the fact that, you know, he supposedly just forgot French. I mean, when you see stuff like this, you, it's, it's, I think it becomes clear that it, he wasn't Roger Tichborne. Um, but, 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 but whether or not he was Arthur Orton, I don't know, it's tough. It's really tough because for every... I mean, even now I'm sitting here saying, oh, I don't think it was. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, but it was. I mean, look at all the whopping evidence from his butcher shop. It, it all ties in it. it so much of it ties in that it's almost impossible. I suppose that's the problem, isn't it? There's all this circumstantial evidence, but it all ties in so neatly. And I think that's probably why it's so like like taken as a given that, that it is that, that that he's Arthur Orton. And I suppose I can see it. I suppose maybe now I've talked myself into it. Uh but 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 I still feel like, okay, sure, maybe he's Arthur Orton, but but prove it to me and it's it, of course it's never going to be proven and that's that's the problem um but i do think yeah i do think that they're okay so probably where i would leave it is i, I think he he wasn't roger tichborne i think he probably was arthur orton but i don't think it's so cut and shut i think there is room for 
investigation and, and there's room to try and prove otherwise if 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 you you know if, if someone out there was so invested i feel like they wouldn't be wasting their time to try and prove elsewhere otherwise um but anyway an interesting case um i thought it was a, a really interesting case it's really quite funny um i do recommend if if you want if you thought it was interesting i recommend um reading uh say so you can get there are all sorts of because at the time it was like this real big deal so there are all sorts of um publications that were released at the time um some of them are, are really nice because they're just like summaries of the court case which is, which is good um but you can also read the entire transcripts and you can find these all online completely for free um uh, otherwise there's a couple of books Rohan McWilliam wrote one called The Tichborne Claimant I didn't really like it that much it was good in fact I did like it but I didn't like it to get the story I wouldn't recommend it as a first book that was it was much more focused on like the the sort of societal aspects of the case which was fascinating but but not helpful for the story um the one I would probably recommend more if you want to just get a really in-depth look at the story that really goes into the case and the trial um quite deeply um if you don't want to read the original transcripts, say go for this one. Um, Robin Anir wrote a book called The Man Who Lost Himself, The Unbelievable Story of the Tichborne Claimant. Um, the links um, or the, the sources are all in the, the, the show notes anyway. So um, if you fancy sort of some further reading, they're probably the two books that I'd recommend, but for very, very different reasons, really. One is a really good sort of like, um, would basically, one would probably be like very similar to this episode, but digging really really in depth because obviously it's a 400 page book or whatever and the other one would be more like a secondary reading um sort of that that sort of explains the the time and the the sort of a lot of the class warfare aspect of the case and things which is really really interesting but probably not the book you go to first so anyway i'd recommend that because i think it's really interesting and and it's much more detailed than i could possibly fit into one episode so it's worth sort of further reading if you if you found it interesting anyway I'm going to stop waffling because this is possibly quite a long episode. Thank you very much for listening. Um, if you'd like to uh, support, uh, that would be fantastic. Uh, it's always really appreciated. Uh, the Patreon, um, yeah, is, is, is probably the sort of bog standard way, um, but, but there are other means of supporting the show that are less sort of, you'd have to sign up to for a monthly thing if you don't want to. Um, yeah, but times are difficult for all of us, aren't they? So yeah, whatever, the, the show's always going to be free. Anyway, um, thanks very much for listening. I'll speak to you uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, Yeah, cheers. Sleep tight.